You make me smile, Dr. Lindemans. That probably was Moselle. Hello, Michelle. Hey, Geordie. How are you? I'm good. What's new? What's new for you, Magoo? <laughs> I'm good. You yeah. know, life is good. Great. Good to I've hear I've got nothing it. to complain about. Yeah, yeah. What's been going on? What have you been doing? Anything fun? Yeah, yeah. Lots of stuff's been happening for me. We had a lovely day out in London last weekend. And I will tell you that I'm getting a little bit fed up, Michelle. I'm getting a little bit fed up of being left on the shelf because... Do you remember when you were in London once and listener Karen, who's lovely, lovely listener Karen, spotted you at the train station and said, oh my God, it's the lady from eavesdropping. That's me. You were recognised. Yes. Well, and then I told you about all the stuff that happened with my partner who looks like Stephen Merchant at the festival recently. Well, I was walking along the River Thames with my husband and children and I came across 25, 25-year-old Essex boys. Now, those of you not from England may not know what I'm talking about. Unless you've ever seen The Only Way is Essex, you might have some idea. They were quaffed and puffed and plucked and shiny and so, so, so groomed within an yeah. inch of their life. It was unbelievable. They asked me to take their picture because they were all out in the town for their mate's birthday. So I did that. And then my husband emerged from the nearby pub where he went to the loo and suddenly jaws dropped. Why? Because they thought he was fucking Stephen Merchant. Again? Oh, yes. my God. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. I was getting all the attention and now he turns up. He told them he was his better looking younger brother. No. <laughs> oh, my God. What kind of haircut has he got? I haven't seen him for a while. He thinks it's the glasses that we coerced him into <gasps> buying that he hated. Yes, but now he loves them because he's a celebrity. Yeah, now he gets into all the best shows and gigs and people come up to him and talk to him. They love him. Some people are a bit in awe of him. You used to get mistaken for Courtney Love when you were back in the day. Yes. And in fact, yes, didn't you I have did, to yes. um, pretend you were her I was something? No. <laughs> My band vetoed it, but I was asked by a chap from City Slang Records, actually, who I think must have been representing them at the time. And I knew him. And he said, I know, Geordie, could you pose as Courtney Love for the front cover of this week's NME? Because she can't make it. She's on a drugs charge and she can't leave the country. <laughs> <laughs> I said yes, but my band said no, no, we have a hard enough time as it is. Do you know who I get the most? Especially when I've lost a bit of weight. Who? It's Joe Wiley. People will not believe me when I say that I'm not Joe Wiley. Really? They think I'm trying to pretend that I'm not her. Yes. I mean, this doesn't happen to me anymore, thank God. But I did have a couple of people say that I looked like Sting's wife. What's her name? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's true. <laughs> It's, it's actually really upsetting. I thought you were going to say Maggie Gyllenhaal or something like that. I have that. had that as well, actually. Trudy Styler. Trudy Styler. And then you kind of look at yourself in the mirror and you think, are people seeing something that I don't see? <laughs> well, it's only because she's quite a bit older than you, I think, is probably the problem there. I don't look anything like Trudy Styler in my eyes. In my eyes. I don't think so. Yes. When people add like 15 to 20 years on your age, it's not nice, is it? It's fucking rude. (laughs) Hey, listen, I've got to tell you, regarding listener Karen, who recognised you, Mm -hmm. she posted on Facebook recently, on our recommendation, a recommendation to watch Sandy Toxfig's Extraordinary Escapes. Oh! Yes, because we mentioned it on the podcast. She went off and watched it. She loves it. And she's... Yeah. promoting it on Facebook. So if Sandy gets kickbacks, I want in on that. Yes. Exactly. What can we do to get Sandy on our side? You can become an influencer. We've got to say Sandy, come on. Yes. We gave you a plug, now give us a plug. Eavesdroppingpodcast.com. It's like Sandy doesn't need any more help, but we've just helped her. We have helped her, but I tell you what, I can't believe that you have gone for the last three, four minutes without talking about the major celebrity spot you had just this oh, week. I wasn't going to mention it because I've, I'm a bit tired of talking about it now. But uh, yes, I did see Paul McCartney in a restaurant. Yes, you did. <laughs> and I did somehow <laughs> manage to get him to sing happy birthday to my friend. And that's going to be something she will dine out on for the rest of her life. I did segue it so that he and his partner had to squeeze past us in order to get out of the restaurant. 
and my daughter and my dining companions, friends, they all got to shake his hand and have a little chat. But I was too busy helping out the people next door to me, advising them on what was good on the menu because I'm kind. And then by the time I turned around, he was gone. Oh, well, you know, that's how it goes. You, can't, it have, you can't have all the celebrity spots. I can't. And especially when I live with Stephen Merchant. Oh, you lucky lady. Oh, God. The thing is, Michelle, I don't even find Stephen Merchant attractive. And I said this to someone. They said, do you find your husband attractive? <laughs> the thing is that I've always found Stephen Merchant attractive. I better watch my step then, hadn't I, when you're around? <laughs> oh, well, you know he was always my celebrity crush. Yeah, and I could never work it out. I don't think we've even introduced ourselves. Oh, bugger. I'm Geordie. Oh, Lordy. And I'm Michelle. And you are listening to Eavesdropping the Pod. It's a podcast. You listen to it. And it's on every week for about an hour. Not always an hour. Sometimes over an hour. But you have you have dedicated yourself to listening. And thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. And I want to just say, Michelle, going back to our gorgeous listeners, we've got our new listener, mm. Shari. And she said that she's very sad because she has now caught up with all the episodes except for the cat killer piggy palace episodes and the spontaneous combustion because it's a phobia of hers but now she has run out of episodes so i convinced her to become a patron welcome shari to the (laughs) patreon page thank you you have helped us out yes and now we're going to help you out so we're going to put some more stuff on our patreon page very soon for you to dine on And uh, there's other ways that our listeners can help us, not just by giving us a tip or pledging a little bit of money month to month to help us get better and put more content up. But also, it's that time of the year. We have entered the British Podcast Awards yet again, and we are up for the Listener's Choice Award. And we need you to vote for us. Otherwise, we won't even scratch the surface because there are other podcasts who keep cleaning up year after year. That's right. And I will put some links to make it very easy for you to be able to vote for us. Or I can even tell you right now what to do, which is go to BritishPodcastAwards.com and find the Listener's Choice Award vote button, which is in the top right hand corner. Are you listening? (laughs) Write it down, people. Write it down. Get a pen. It's in the top right hand corner of the page and get your friends to do it as well. And we'll make sure that it's all on our socials and Michelle will link it. So there is no excuse, people. No excuse. But also, obviously, thank you. Yes. And please tell your friends. And while you're at it, go give us five star on Google and Apple and everything. Because the more listeners we have, the better we are able to do what we do best. Or at least... Somewhat. Exactly. <laughs> then we can get to the dizzy heights of Sandy Toxfig's fame and, and reach, you know? And then we can help her out. And then we can go on an extraordinary escape with her. Wouldn't that be nice? I'd love that. I think she'd have a ball with us. I would actually be with someone who makes me look tall. <laughs> yeah, that's teeny true. tiny. <laughs> oh, I want to talk about the last couple of episodes, Michelle. Two weeks ago, the UFO episode, Michelle, you told me that terrifying story about the eight-foot aliens Mm. and the crash-landing UFO in somebody's garden. I want to give a little shout-out to one of our super uber listeners, Linda. Love you a long time, Linda. Uh, She actually had sent that story to us, but you had already found it. So it kind of coincided. As we were recording it, she had sent us it. So we are all on the same bloody page. How fantastic is that? People are tapping into this universal kind of thought flow of riven. I don't know what I'm talking about. But I do think there is something to it. it you had talked about this with the crosswords. Somehow the answers are out there and people yes. tap into this universal idea of whatever. Collective consciousness, I call it. Yes, yes. maybe, maybe. But, you know, all of that's going to be taken over by AI pretty soon. Yes, I know. They need it to be regulated. Apparently, the developers are begging to be regulated. It has to be. Or shit's going to go down. I mean, I don't know if you've jumped on this whole like chat GPT thing. It's a text-based AI. You just go online, you sign up for it. I know. You know it. Because so, everybody's basically writing their essays. Like every school kid is now getting chat GPT to write their essay for them. Or songs. Or poems. We could even get ChatGPT to write our podcast for us. It wouldn't be as funny. But it's amazing. Like, you know, I've been dabbling with it and it's incredible. But it sounds like a robot, not a human. Mm. 
Put a pin in that because that's not what we are talking about today. Not today. And I do want to say that super listener and Uber eavesdropper and all-round hot guy, (laughs) Al Teggett, has sent a story for us to do today, which I'm going to cover. And he also wanted to point out, because he's also our eavesdropping corrections corner as well. He wanted to correct you, Michelle. It's not Archangel, but I think you knew that. It's Archangel. I was reading it as written and I'd never called it an Archangel, but Archangel. Yes. Yes. I'm happy to be corrected. I'm not AI. I'm real. Especially by the gorgeous Al Taggett. Exactly. We are real. With that said, please, I don't know if I've got all this stuff right that I'm about to tell you, but I wanted to talk about a, a murder that happened yeah. in Australia. Jordi, you actually asked me to investigate this guy, a guy called Donald McKay. And I have to admit, I had never heard of him. I think it's pronounced Mackay. Mackay? Mackay? Mackay. Yeah. Okay. Mackay. How do you? Okay. Because it's Scottish, Mackay. Donald McKay. Well, either way, I'd never heard of him. Hadn't you? No. And I spoke to Jen about it. Jen all round Jenipedia. And yeah. she was like, oh, yes, I know all about him. And in fact, her neighbor. Yeah, the major at the time. Her neighbor lived in Griffith and has some goss, but didn't get to me in time. Maybe we'll do some updates. The fact that you've just mentioned Griffith. You do know that's my parents' hometown and I lived there until I was three. Did you live there? I know that you have called it the the food bowl of Australia before, that area. Yes. My grandmother lived there all her life. My uncle still lives there. My uncles, two uncles. Well, they will have the dirt. They will have the goss because they were obviously there on the ground. I did a little bit of duck duck going because I didn't know anything about Donald Mackay. And what I found out is actually shocking. It is a story of crime and corruption, like we said, in the small Aussie town of Griffith in New South Wales, Australia. And spoiler alert. They do oranges, they do wine, they do all sorts. They do it all. It's a massive like country area, lots of farming, like on an, a huge agricultural scale. Like I said, the food bowl of Australia. Oranges are not the only thing they grow, Geordie. That's, that's right. right. And that's what we are looking at today because Griffith is known as the green capital of Australia. Green meeting marijuana people. That's what we're talking about. It's pot. Mary Jane, marijuana, ganja. <laughs> what else can we call it? Pot. <laughs> some weird. You've got some green. Jazz cigarettes. Spoiler alert. I'm going to do a mini dive into what is effectively the murder of Donald Mackay and the dark kind of seedy underbelly of the Calabrian Mafia. Because this guy, Donald, he was not only a successful businessman with a snazzy furniture store in Griffith that everybody knew about. And that's why my parents knew them, because my grandparents also had a second-hand furniture store. Oh, so I think they actually knew him. Of course. Yeah. Do you know what? Mum... Jen said he was a really great guy, lovely. Everyone loved him. Top bloke, she might even have said. That's what they say. Everyone said he was just a sweetheart. So, it, you know, it's really awful. Thing is, he was a massive anti-drugs campaigner. And after investigating this story, I just can't help but think that he stepped on a few too many of the wrong toes in Griffith and obviously paid for that with his life. I'm going to take you back to 5.30 p.m., on Friday, the 15th of July in 1977, mm. when Donald yeah. Mackay, who was 43 at the time, he closed up that snazzy furniture store. His family had owned and run, actually, since the 1920s. So he's like died in the wall Griffith guy. He jumped into yeah. his minivan and went to the nearby Griffith Park Hotel for a drink after work. And look, earlier that day, He told his wife, Barbara, that he'd be home by seven because she had to go off to some meeting because she was also like big in the town, into the community, kind of chit chat. Uh, He had to come home and look after the youngest of their four kids while she was out at this meeting. So Donald had a few drinks at the hotel. He chatted with some mates, mostly about the stuff that, you know, pissed him off about living in Griffith, which was the drugs, the mafia and all the pot that was growing in the area. And then he went to the Bottle O. And that's what Aussies call a bottle shop that is attached to a pub. Yeah. A bottle of license. The yeah. offie. Where you buy your booze. I mean, it's classy. He bought a cask of wine. White wine, in fact. And he headed out to Yuck. the car park. It's probably Moselle oh, in a bag. Or, or maybe... Um, Do you remember that stuff? Blue Nun. 
<laughs> Riesling, a bit of blue nun Riesling. Oh, Dr. Lindemann's. Do you oh, remember? Yes. Dr. Lindemann's. <laughs> I'd forgotten about you that. Make, make us smile, smile Dr. Lindemann's. <laughs> that probably was Moselle. <laughs> he had this cask of white wine and he went into the car park because, you know, he had to get home. And Geordie, I hate to say this, but that was the last time anyone saw Donald alive because he didn't show up at home. I knew that. I sound like I'm shocked, but I actually knew that, yeah. After he didn't arrive home, Barbara got worried. So she called a guy called Ian Salmon, who was a mate of Donald's. He was also uh, his solicitor. And he'd actually been working late that night in an office building that was on the other side of the car park. So he agreed to drive around to a few places to look for him. And, you know, remember, this was way before mobiles. And, you know, if your husband didn't come home at that time in Australia, he was most likely getting pissed in a pub. So he was supposed to storm around there and burst in and scream at him and say, get home now, you rat bag. Dinner's in the dog. He's in the doghouse. You spent all our paycheck. I mean, at this point, alarm bells weren't ringing for Barbara because I, I think she just right. thought, is that a few beers? You know, is that a few skewies? The mate drove around for a while but couldn't find him. You know, like I said, no one thought anything dodgy had happened to Donald, but it was out of character for him to do something like that. In fact, the friend was driving around for hours and as it got closer and closer to midnight and Donald was nowhere to be found, Ian, the friend, started freaking out and he at that point contacted the police, but he kept looking for Donald and Mm. Geordie, that's when he found Donald's furniture minivan in the hotel car park. Which, right. I don't know why you didn't just look there in the first place, but anyway. Yeah, I was thinking that. He got out to see if Donald was inside the car and the first thing he noticed was the imprint of a man's hand on the driver's window. He then oh, got God. back in his car and turned on his headlights so he could see things better because I think obviously this car park wasn't very well lit. That's when he saw blood. Pools mm. and pools of blood. Plus, there were 3.22 bullet shells lying on the ground there were also blood stains on his van the keys to the car were underneath the van and oh, near the car were marks that looked like someone had been dragged plus oh no yeah the police later found bits of his hair and the weird thing though but nobody exactly all this blood bits of hair car keys the lot nobody And I will tell you right now, in what has become basically one of Australia's most dodgy mysteries, to this day, Donald's body has never been found. And look, oh my God. When I was speaking to Jen, she went, Oh, yeah, he got fed to the pigs. And I was like, Oh, thanks, Jen. (laughs) That's like, we always talk about being fed to the pigs. But I did also read there's a theory that he was put through a pet food grinder. Another theory. Oh, my God. Yeah was that he was burned in the local hospital incinerator. And do you know what? Mum's mate did work in the hospital there. So put a pin in that. I'm going to have to ask Jen about that. Jen, get on the case. Okay. But another theory is that uh, his body <laughs> was weighed down and dumped in, in the river or okay. that his body was set in concrete underneath a building. But it's all speculation oh because he's God. never been found. But, you know... No way of knowing. No, but what the fuck was going on here? Because, like I said before, he was a prominent figure in Griffith with furniture shop. He was also in local politics. But, like I also said, I think the thing that most likely got him killed was the fact that he had really strong opinions about all the Mary J, Mary J, J, that was being grown in Griffith in the 70s. And more than that, you know, he had some pretty salty things to say about the Italian families in Griffith that he believed were behind... the illegal drug trade. We are talking mafia here, Calabrian mafia specifically. And they were also called La Familia and Ndrangheta. I think that's how you say it. You know, in a nutshell, he was pissing off some pretty dodgy people who, you know, lived in town who, A, had something to lose by him trying to shut down their drugs business. And B, these guys had guns and clearly they were not afraid to use them. But actually... What happened is way more complicated and there are so many theories about what happened and why. I'm just going to start with a couple of facts that I want you to put a pin in because first of all, three years earlier in 1974, Donald had stood as a liberal candidate 
for the House of Representatives against Al Grasby, who was a popular Australian Labor Party politician in the electorate of Riverina. Now, Donald was aligned with the country party, which is liberal. So when he didn't win, his voting preferences went to the country party. And this meant that a guy called John Sullivan, who got elected, was able to unseat Al Grasby. So this obviously pissed off Al Grasby. And look, I actually kind of love saying his name because it's such a 70s name. Al Grasby. Al Grasby. I know. And he was quite an interesting 70s character as well, wasn't he? He was short, bald, big moustache. And he looked like um, a comedy character and he always had ill-fitting suits. Yes. Big, jazzy 70s ties. With stripes. Yeah, he was a bit of a character. I think that kind of put a bit of a target on Donald's back. So just keep that in mind because okay, what also happened at that point was that Donald used his political platform to shed light on the drugs issue in Griffith and he identified a guy called Robert Trimboli of suspiciously amassing a lot of quick money. So pin that bit of info. Yeah. Then Donald found out about a massive marijuana crop in the nearby town of Calamberley. Is that how you say it? I don't know. And he squealed. He went to Sydney, drug squad detectives, yeah. about it. And four of these Italian mafia guys in Griffith were arrested and convicted of growing drugs. Thing is, during the trial, Donald was outed as the whistleblower. Oh, they said his name. Yeah. So again, another target on Donald's back. Oh dear. You know, and this time... By the Calabrian Mafia. That was a ridiculous move. Why would you do that? It's shitty. People get killed for that kind of stuff. Well, clearly. Because three days before Donald disappeared, he was asked to go to a place called Gerildery. 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 I think it's Gerildery. That sounds familiar. It's 160k away and he was meant to meet a guy called Mr. Adams. I'm doing air quotes here. Who basically said, hey, I'm a lottery winner and I need to furnish my entire house with furniture from the Mackay mm. Furniture Store. Oh, God. But Donald couldn't go. So he sent one of his employees instead, which I think saved his life because Mr. Adams yeah. didn't exist. Right. It was actually a hitman called James <gasps> Basley who had set up the hit and was waiting for Donald. Basically, the employee went there and... Did they kill the employee? No. But all of this information came out later, so put a pin in that. Okay. Lots of pins. I'm losing track of my pins. Oh, sorry. It's a lot. I know. Look, he basically got three more days of life. That was it. Okay. When Donald disappeared, they initially treated it as a missing persons case. But it didn't take long for people to realise that, you know, there was foul play involved, particularly when a burnt-out car belonging to a Calabrian mafia guy called Gianfranco Tizzoni was discovered in bushland close to Griffith. Thing is, whoever set fire to that car didn't do a very good job because police discovered traces of Donald's blood and his hair inside that car. (gasps) Oh, my goodness. So with all of that in mind, I'm just going to look at a couple of theories Starting with the idea that Donald was targeted and killed by members of the Calabrian Mafia. Before Donald died, his aggressive campaign against the marijuana growers and all the crops in Griffith, it had caught the attention of the Sydney press. After the disappearance, it was the media rather than the police that basically said this is a mafia killing. And in fact, it was the Sun in Sydney that expressed concern, and this is a quote, that gangland murder should now be a part of the nation's illegal drug industry. Oh. Well, the Sydney Morning Herald published an article with the headline that read, Griffith, marijuana capital? Question mark. So it was all over the media. And, you know, even if the police weren't joining the dots between Donald's disappearance and the mafia and organised crime, the papers were. Under pressure from kind of the media and also public opinion, the New South Wales opposition, which at that stage, had already considered a Royal Drugs Commission. Well, they finally took action. And New South Wales Premier Neville Rann announced the formation of a Royal Commission into drugs after meeting with the police commissioner about Donald's disappearance. But the issue was bigger than New South Wales and Griffith. And the federal government under Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser established the Drugs Royal Commission headed by Justice Woodward. This was on August 10 in 77, just three weeks after Donald's disappearance. So the commission obviously was all over Griffith and the Mafia. They were doing a deep dive into six main suspects who it was kind of an open secret 
were Calabrian Mafia in Griffith. They were allegedly yeah. pot growers. And, in fact, one guy the commission investigated, like I said earlier, it was a guy called Robert Trimboli who had his finances raked over during the 1977 Woodward Royal Commission – all connected, these royal commissions, and it revealed some dodgy shit because despite declaring a tiny taxable income of just a few thousand dollars, Robert Tromboli, he was living it up, flashy lifestyle, and the commission had found that, yeah, he had laundered money, more than $1.8 million, Oh, which, my God. 1977. That is a shit ton. The speculation here is that Donald's interference in the mafia's drug operations, you know, was jeopardizing the money that was coming mm-hmm. in from the drug crops. And basically getting rid of him would mean that they could go back to growing their crops in peace and getting filthy rich. Yeah. Remember how I mentioned earlier that Donald had helped unseat Al Grasby yeah. politically. So it turns out Al Grasby was very matey-matey with the Italian mafia families in Griffith. He was very friendly with a, a Griffith family called the Sergis. And in fact, loads of people remember that they would see his Commonwealth car with the little flag yeah. outside the Sergis' house, you know, for birthday parties and stuff. So, you know, he was right in there with them. But basically, he played dumb about the marijuana crops in Griffith and say in public that He'd heard nothing about any marijuana crops growing there. This is in the face of the fact that at that time, despite it costing millions to buy and set up irrigated vineyards and orchards and whatever else that people needed to grow crops, the Italian families in that area who had struggled to get by with growing, you know, oranges and whatever in the 60s. Prunes. I seem to remember a prune factory. Prunes, all of that. Could be. Yeah, there is. Well, they were flushed with cash in the 70s, while other people just growing normal fruit crops and vegetables and whatnot, they're on the verge of bankruptcy. They called them grass castles, where all those like concrete nightmare, huge houses were being built in Griffith by the Italian families to kind of launder this money. I don't know, maybe Al Grasby also had beef with Donald and was prepared to look the other way. But in fact, Al Grasby was actually charged with criminal defamation. Really? For allegedly, yeah, circulating, because he circulated a document in 1980 that accused Donald's wife, Barbara, her son and Donald's family, plus Ian Salmon, of conspiring to murder Donald. What? Yeah, he pointed the finger and said the family family murdered. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he was actually found guilty in 1991. Wow. But he was acquitted on appeal in 92. So he was stirring the pot with that family, trying to make out Donald's family killed him. Distraction. But basically, the conventional theories here about what happened to Donald are that it was you know, a retribution killing because he was trying to expose the mafia's illegal activities and, you know, killing him off got rid of a problem. But also it's a warning to anyone else, like don't fuck with us Mm because this is what's going to happen to you. Then there are other theories. Maybe the hit was orchestrated by rival gangs like the Hungarian mafia or the Greek syndicate or even corrupt police officers. But I think that's unlikely. But the thing is, the Royal Commission was actually a bit of a dud. You know, it was a lot of hoo-ha and not much substance. And it confirmed things that everyone knew, that the Griffith marijuana trade was under the control of the key players yeah. of the La Familia Calabrian Mafia. And it didn't really change anything. And it never uncovered the mystery of what happened to Donald. And that was actually in spite of Justice Woodward's final report, where he had said that there was a cell of Griffith Mafia, Calabrian Mafia, that were involved in Donald's murder, including a guy called Francesco Sergi, Dominic Sergi, Antonio Sergi. These are all Grasby's mates. Yep, senior and junior, Francesco Barbaro and Robert Trimboli. Now, one of the Calabrian Mafia guys was a guy called Gianfranco Tizzoni, who I talked about earlier. He actually turned informer in 1983 oh. and he admitted to some involvement in Donald's murder, saying that it was actually oh. him, yeah, that arranged for a hitman <gasps> called 
Fred to kill Donald. Now, when I mentioned this to Jen, I said to Jen, you know, mum, there was a hitman called Fred who was put on to Donald and killed him. I said, you know, that's our dad's name. And my dad had mafia. And I was like, I know. And I was like, mum, do you think dad could have... Is he from Naples? My dad. Yeah, Yeah. he's full Naples. And I said, mum, do you think he was involved in this? And she said, no, darling. He wasn't in Griffith ever. How can you be sure? Well, he never went to Griffith, apparently. He never went to Griffith. Okay. I don't think my dad was the hitman. Let's hope not. I bloody hope not too. Donald, basically, it has come out that it was this guy called James Basley who was the hitman, despite this guy saying it was a guy called Fred. It was probably his code name anyway. Yeah. James was actually charged in 1986 with killing Donald. Okay. However, he has always claimed that he was innocent. And in fact, he blamed an allegedly corrupt former Sydney detective called Fred Craher. What? As the killer. That's a bit weird. But it didn't stick. Okay. But his name's Fred. That is true. James was sentenced to life imprisonment, but he was released in 2001. To this day, the people who the Royal Commission basically said ordered Donald's hit, they've never been brought to justice, including Robert Tromboli, who did actually face charges relating to Donald's murder. But he fled to Spain before his trial, and he remained there as a fugitive until he died in 87. So... Donald's body has never been found. No one's ever really admitted to killing him and it still remains a mystery. Oh my goodness. What a story, Michelle. See, I remember this very well because my parents loved the news and they loved this story. They wouldn't love it, but they were following it all the time because Mm. it was their hometown. Yep. Fascinating. Thanks, Michelle. No wackers. Murder, murder. It's true and it's crime. It's very interesting that you should uh, talk all about the drugs and the the mafia, especially the Calabrian mafia, because I've got a little story for you today that has shades of that. And it was sent to me by full-time hot guy and eavesdropping researcher, Al Taggett. Thank you, Al, for the story of the murder of Colin Winchester, who was the Assistant Commissioner in the Australian Federal Police and also the Commander of the ACT Police, which is the Australian Capital Territory. It's a state on its own. So it was the Federal Police and the ACT. And he was also the highest ranking policeman to ever be murdered in Australia. Shocking. And this is a story, a news story that I missed because I didn't live in Australia, I think, or I had just about to flee Australia at that point. We're talking about 1989 and and it was actually January of 1989. So I was getting ready to leave the country for good at that point. Colin Winchester, who I just explained who he was, he was parking his car, very similar circumstances. Mm. He was parking his car in the driveway of his neighbour's house in the suburb of Deakin in Canberra. And he did this because... His neighbour was elderly and she liked having a car parked there. It made her feel safe. But about 9.15 that night, whilst parking the car, Colin Winchester was shot twice in the head with a Ruger .22, like you said before, Michelle, semi-automatic rifle with a silencer as he was getting out of his car. Jesus. Very similar. Really similar already, yep. Winchester's killer had been waiting for him in the dark. The gunshots were heard by his wife Gwen in the house. She said it sounded like sharp stones coming up on the front of the window. Mm. So she went outside to investigate and found her husband collapsed behind the steering wheel. Awful. So the investigation that followed, obviously it was one of their own, so they had to jump straight on that. And it was very high ranking, as I said. And they only found one suspect, Michelle, despite rumours of Winchester being corrupt and allegedly taking bribes from a Canberra casino. There was an actual audit on Colin Winchester post-murder to see if this was a a theory that was worth looking into. Yeah. Yeah, it showed that there was nothing amiss with his financial details. So the only suspect that they then had was a 44-year-old former economist for the Treasury Department by the name of David Eastman. Now, this guy was a top student at Canberra Grammar School where he was Ducks of the Year or Ducks of the School or whatever it is. I don't even know what a Ducks is. What's Ducks? It's the top. The very best boy. Very, very top. It's the very top. He got the top marks. You got best and fairest and then you got the Ducks. 
I think Ducks is academic. Yes, I know. You're the smarty pants of the school. Well done. Mm. So he was up there for thinking. Possibly not down there for dancing. He went on to study at University of Sydney at the age of 16, which is quite young. You know, he's surpassed his peers by about two or three years. And he was 21 when he started seeing a psychiatrist because he was feeling lonely and miserable and not getting on with people. So I'm starting to see here um, a little bit of maybe, I don't know, some kind of social anxiety forming. In 1986, Eastland's own mother sought a restraining order on him because he threatened her life while trying to break down her front door. Later, Eastman became involved in a dispute with a neighbour in 1987 and was charged with assault. He was adamant that this assault charge was wrong and it shouldn't be put on him. It was his neighbour's fault. He was to blame. They were to blame. And in 1988, as a result of this assault charge, David Eastman met with Colin Winchester, who was then the chief of the ACT police, to try and lose the assault charge. Mm. But to no avail, because Winchester advised Eastman that he would need to face the assault charges and a date was set for the 12th of January 1989. Then on the morning of Winchester's death, which was the 10th of January 1989, Eastman had received the disappointing news that police were not going to drop the charges and the court date would still go ahead, and he was furious. Right. So this is the reason why David Eastman was number one suspect, despite the fact that there were rumours of the Calabrian Mafia being responsible for the murder. And the group of people who they point the finger at is the Andragheta, which is the same group that you said before. Yeah. There is not La Familia, but there's another Honorata, which is also linked to Donald Mackay's murder. Yeah. And Andragheta is also another one that's linked to Donald Mackay's murder. I will say it seems so unlikely that a kid in Canberra can get hold of A gun like that with a silencer. Well, this guy's not a kid. He's 44. David Eastman is an older man. Oh, sorry. I thought he was four. I just just find it so unbelievable that... He would be so cross. No, well, A, that he would be so cross. And B, that... That he would shoot someone. Well, how would he get a gun? They just weren't available. Like, normal people just didn't have access to that kind of stuff back then. It seems like, come on, it seems mafia-esque already. It does very much smack of the mafia, Mm. doesn't it? And the reason why the Calabrian mafia was mentioned is because it is said that Winchester had double-crossed them in a 1980s undercover sting that busted their cannabis crops, which were being grown in a town in New South Wales near Canberra called Bungandor. (gasps) Oh, my God. Which we know very well. We do know Bungandor. But this was not enough to pursue, and perhaps it was more likely that... Eastman was a loose cannon, and this made him the perfect cover-up. He's a scapegoat. At the trial, it came out that Eastman had a string of threats towards police, which I'd mentioned earlier, including harassment and menacing phone calls, and one instance of actual bodily harm and three of assaulting police. Forensics linked Eastman to the firearm that was used to shoot Winchester, plus there were reports of sightings of him near the murder scene and at gun shops in the nearby town of Queanbeyan. Oh. So perhaps you can buy a gun. I don't know. Ooh. Semi-automatic? I'm not sure. With a silencer? Well, I guess. Eastman was legally bugged for three and a half years, yet only a very small proportion of the recorded material was used as evidence in his trial. And in 1995, Eastman was convicted of the murder of Colin Winchester and was sentenced to life without parole. Wow. He's probably out. (laughs) So he is out because he launched loads of appeals on the basis that he was mentally unfit during the original trial, Hmm. even though he was still hurling abuse at the judge because he was very abusive during his trial. And at all these court hearings, he just can't help himself. He's just constantly hurling abuse at the judges. And at one point he had to be removed and put in another room so the judge could turn him down. He was being put on by video link (laughs) and the judge was able to just turn him down whenever he started losing his shit. Turn him back up to ask him a question, turn him back down because he's swearing and shouting. But don't you think that actually then kind of backs up the fact that he's got some mental health issues potentially he's like i said a loose cannon Mm. this guy cannot control his emotional responses Mm. and actually they do say in the reports that i read and i read this report in the guardian 
that it's probably due to him suffering from a paranoid personality disorder which was used against him in order to get him to crack and confess by the police. Evil. It's not nice. If it's true, it's not good. PPD, as it's known, is a mental health condition where the sufferer is suspicious and distrusts others without adequate reason. People with PPD are always on guard, believing that others are constantly trying to demean, harm or threaten them. So the police went to work on Eastman. Before the original trial, they falsely accused him of homosexual activities with boys. They would (gasps) knock on his door unannounced to return property constantly out of the blue. It was harassment, quite simply. And at one point when he tried to get rid of an officer from the front of his house, the officer stuck his foot in the door. Poor old David Eastman was left completely ragged from all of this harassment and he frequently complained to his lawyer Stuart Pilkington who eventually wrote to police to tell them to stop this harassment stop going around to return this so-called property and the response to his letter was a drunken phone call from a detective sergeant Ninness who was at the time head of the policing team investigating the murder who reportedly said the following words I got your fucking letter If I want to talk to your little cunt of a client, I'll fucking well talk to him whenever I fucking well like. You can stick your fucking letter where it hurts most. Oh my God, that sounds like something I would say. Sincerely yours, Michelle. (laughs) There was then an inquiry in 2012, which is quite later on, and then another in 2014, where eventually it was found that there had been a substantial miscarriage of justice and that David Eastman did not receive a fair trial. The forensic evidence was found to be deeply flawed and the forensic investigator, he had mixed up his samples, which were the damning evidence to put him behind bars and he'd accidentally destroyed evidence. It was unheard of. It was the worst possible kind of handling of forensic evidence. So the conviction was overturned. No, because if the forensic evidence is the smoking gun in the conviction and it's wrong, Mm. that poor guy, that poor guy, I feel bad for him. It's that coupled with, you know, all this harassment to get him to crack and also just his behaviour around the same time. It fit. Mm. It was just very good timing for them to stick it on him. Unless, you know, he did do it. We don't know. They say he didn't. What do you think? I'm not sure about that. The judge presiding said that he was fairly certain that Eastman was guilty, but a nagging doubt remains. Huh. Interesting thing to say, isn't it? Yeah. So after he was released, David Eastman lodged a civil claim against the ACT government seeking compensation for wrongful imprisonment, which he won in 2019, because after 19 years of his life spent behind bars for a crime he says he didn't commit, he was then awarded $7 million in compensation, which is pretty big, actually. Oh, wow. So if it wasn't him, Michelle, then who was it? I read an article in the Daily Mail in 2022, so it's quite recent. Italian police revealed two people known as the Shepherds had been tasked with carrying out a hit by the mafia on Colin Winchester. Wow. It claimed the two were sent to Australia in October 1988. It said that one of the so-called Shepherds is now happily married with a family and still living in the suburbs of a major Australian city. Italian police told AFP, the Australian Federal Police, in 1990 that the Endragheta organised crime syndicate had arranged for the man, then 21, to murder Colin Winchester before marrying a local boss's daughter so that he could stay in the country. Hmm. It's believed the assassination was ordered to protect an illegal drug distribution network operating along Australia's eastern seaboard. Of course. So that fits. Yeah. The man was questioned by police in Australia but denied any involvement in the murder, saying he was just an Italian immigrant. Right. It could be pure coincidence, but he came from the same village in Calabria in Italy as the mafia syndicate. Yep. Then there's the other guy who was suspected, and he fled the country shortly after the shooting. It's also been said that this other section of the mafia, who I mentioned earlier, the L'Onorata Society or whatever, could also be responsible. And they were the ones, I think, were partly responsible or perhaps they were wondering if that was the people who had ordered the 1977 murder of Donald Mackay, who you just talked about. Yep. Apparently, around 1980, the Federal Police and the New South Wales Bureau of Criminal Intelligence had an informant who grew the cannabis in Bungandore in huge amounts 
And this was called Operation Seville. And the aim was to take down the mafia bosses in Australia by linking them to the drug distribution. So this is like New South Wales Police and the Canberra Police and the umbrella of AFP managing this. But unfortunately, because of the two different police forces, they weren't communicating properly and it went a little bit wrong. So with Winchester at the helm of the AFP, they were really keen to get this big case cracked and had the resources to make it happen. But the problem was that Bungandor, even though it's right next to Canberra, is actually in New South Wales. So that was under the New South Wales Police. So they didn't have a lot of access to the New South Wales Police um, information and hence this whole plan kind of fucked up. Yeah, it wasn't joined up back then at all. And there was not a lot of cooperation. No. There was a Royal Commission some years later that revealed police corruption was rife throughout the ranks of the New South Wales Police. Evidence tampering, bribery, other accusations were all coming up. And crops of up to 90 kilos of cannabis were released onto the streets under the watchful eye of the police between 1981 and 1983 in order to get the big bosses they had to basically supply yeah. supply the drugs yeah right okay. they were the ones making it happen in an attempt to get inside the criminal network using their informants a huge raid was planned and mafia bosses and drug lords were all set to fall but it just didn't pan out that way and several theories that linked to the murder of colin winchester followed okay one theory was due to the alleged corruption, some New South Wales police had been on the receiving end of bribes from the mafia and had given them a heads up. And the mafia had sent armed men to take the cannabis off the site in Bungandor on three different occasions. So they had got their money back, basically, and they knew what was going on. That actually sounds legit. I can imagine that. And then they put a bullet in the guy's head who organised the whole thing in the first place. Yeah. It's also speculated that Winchester then secretly set about building evidence that would directly implicate New South Wales police involvement in the botched operation. And so he was making enemies in the New South Wales police as well. Right. So there's a couple of different people gunning, quite literally, for Colin Winchester. Shades of Donald Mackay here too. Like so many people out to get these two guys. Some people question the professional hitman style of the murder. Two bullets at close range to the head. Sounds pretty mafia to me. But the choice of firearm, and this is a bit confusing to me, Michelle, 0.22 caliber Ruger, self-learning rifle. I don't know much about guns, but Mm. they say in the article that I read that it was more likely to be used for hunting rabbits than an ordered hit. A semi-automatic? What? I don't get it. I don't think so. No, 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 no. And do you know what? I have a friend who she did a master's in ballistics. So I'm going to ask her. Ask her. I'll I'll get back to you. She should have been on the court case. So this is how Eastman was back in the picture because of the rabbit hunting gun, blah, blah, blah. The prosecution claimed Mm. he purchased a rifle of this exact type before the murder. I've got Andreas right here. He knows about guns. Ask him. Babe, what what kind of gun do you use for shooting rabbits? Would you ever use a Ruger .22 caliber? He's laughing. He just said no. I didn't think so. It's weird that that was even reported. I mean, I didn't make that That's up. Ridiculous. That was reported in the Guardian article ridiculous. that I read. I don't know anything about guns. We both don't know anything about guns. Even we know that's bullshit. I know. So how did they even got that into the court reports? Mm. The other thing is the length of time that had passed between the botched operation and Winchester's uh, murder made it less likely to be mafia. Because five years between it all going tits up in Bung and Door with the cannabis crops and the professional hit, it just didn't tally. And it just, I think the timing for David Eastman, it did tally because it was the morning of mm. two days before his court case. He's furious because he's been hauled up for a, an assault charge that he didn't believe it was his fault. And he's been yeah. having a lot of, you know, conversations with Colin Winchester. And on the morning, he got this letter from him saying, sorry, you're going to go to court. The guy gets killed. I mean, it's convenient. It's a little convenient, I think. It has been said that David Eastman was the perfect fool guy for the police in this instance. And maybe they are hand in hand, police and mafia. I'm not saying that. You know, it's not my opinion. That's just a, a question. Allegedly, I'm putting it out alleged, there. Allegedly, but there is a final yes. word from Al Taggett, who is the reason why we're doing this story. Ooh. He had a friend who moved to Naples. Yeah. And this friend went to a country pub one day where he struck up a conversation with a local man. And when the man asked whereabouts in Australia he was from and his friend replied, Canberra, 
Al's friend, I mean. The man said, oh, I know that place. One of my friends went there and killed the local police chief. <gasps> and it's pretty random. How? Okay. Why would somebody say that? I actually got yeah. a, a shiver. I've got a shiver on my arms. I've actually got goosebumps from that because that doesn't no. sound random at all. That sounds pretty yeah. specific. Wow. And, you know, Calabria is so close yeah. to, to Naples. Like, they're all hand in hand down south. Holy shit. Wow, that's a really powerful story. Thank you. And it links to yours as well, which I thought was interesting. There's the drugs, the police involvement, hits, ordered hits. The Calabrian. Bet you Jen has something to say about Colin Winchester as well. I bet she has something to say. I bet you do, Jen. She's always got something to say. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot to digest. And I want to take that in because I think, look, when I was doing the research for this story, a lot of those Griffith mafia families well, the next generations, the younger generations, they're in and out of prison and the drug scene. One of them actually just got killed, I think, like in the last few years. So, you know, I think one of the Sergi family, it's ongoing. Wow. It goes down through the generations. And, um, it's a family business. You better be careful what you say and me too. You <laughs> better be careful what you say. I'm, listen, it's all speculation. We're just repeating things that we've read in reports, apart from obviously a hearsay mention from Al's friend who moved to Naples and I'm not going to mention his name. No. I've mentioned Al's name. You know, we're, <laughs> we're not going to stop anything from happening. We're just telling it like it is. It's history. We're just telling stories. Well, that was really quite something and I feel I feel disturbed. Mm. Yeah, thank you for a great story. My pleasure. When you were talking about Deacon, he got killed in Deacon. I was I was living in Deacon. Yeah. At that time. Right. I was. That could have been like streets away from me. Terrifying. Yeah. There it is, all wrapped up in a neat little bow. Another episode of Eavesdropping. It was a police, corruption, drugs, mafia, hometown investigation. Because it took in my hometown, where my parents were born and bred, and your hometown. Indeed. So thank you very much. And you know, Geordie, look. I think there's really only one thing left to say right now. Oh, I wonder what that would be. Would it be wherever you are? Whatever you do. Just, just keep eavesdropping. 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 Eavesdropping.